and thank you for the privilege of being with you here this morning. Uh, Joy sends her greetings. I'm really sorry she couldn't be here. As you saw, she's definitely the better part of the pair. <laughs> um, hey, I just have one correction to make about the uh, insert. Um, you know, they, they list in the next last paragraph, very graciously, Stephen and Joy Dens have three adult children, and it missed that there's two grandchildren. So I just want to add that. <clears throat> Felix and Sonny. And uh, the kids down the stairs with, with uh, Jane Eklov uh, prayed for, for them this morning. I was really, <laughs> that was really very sweet. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it's really a privilege to be here and, and thank specifically North Sub Church for your support for 30, probably 36 years. This church has been making monthly contributions to our ministry. That's kind of amazing when you think about it. Um, so we're very proud of you and proud to be here. And I'm glad you all made it through the snow this morning. Um, it, was pretty, it was pretty fun on the uh, toll road. <laughs> when you travel around the French countryside, uh, the first thing that might strike you is the number of steeples. At the center of every village in France, there's a tall, very tall, stone uh, steeple, stone church, over, overriding the, the, the town. And, and judging from the size and the sheer number of these churches, you'd think that the Christian faith plays a very important part, a, a very important role in the life of the people. Um, until 1970, one in five French people uh, still went to church every Sunday, 20%, which was a significant number. Uh, today, that number has shrunk to about one in 25 it's actually not 7%. Like I said, it's down under closer to 4% now. It's been, it's been really plummeting in the last few years. In fact, the French have quit baptizing their babies in the Catholic Church. In 1970, 94% of French families still baptized their babies. It was just a, a tradition, a ritual. And today, that number has dropped to under 20%. Um, so now what? Our church is just a vestige? of days gone by? Uh, does it not mean anything anymore? Um, you drive around, look around at churches. There are, are uh, 42,000 Catholic churches in France. And you, if you drove around, you'd find that a lot of them are, are empty on Sunday. And you might conclude that, like most of your neighbors, the French have given up on the Christian faith and never give God a second thought. But in France and on the North Shore, I think nothing is further from the truth. The French we meet are opposed to religion. They don't want to hear about the church. But they have questions about God that they would like to talk with somebody about. We know they do because they answered that poll I mentioned, a Harris poll. <clears throat> 40 million of, the equivalent of 40 million of them answered they do have questions they'd like to talk to somebody about. The paradox of, of these, these recent centuries is, is what we call secularization. Secularization, I, this is not a, a lecture, but I, I do think a, a definition is maybe important because it's a word that we talk a lot about. And it's generally a transformation in society away from close identification with religious values and church towards non-religious values and secular institutions. So you see that all around you here. You see it on the news every night. 
the world, this worldview holds that religion is a primitive idea, and as a, as a society progresses, religion loses its place in the daily life and the leadership of the people and of the nation. For 200 years, the French have taken secularization to a whole new level. Um, they've worked to remove any reference to religion, whether it be Christian or any other religion, out of, out of public conversation. Uh, they want to rid politics, they want to rid public life, and they especially want to rid the minds of their youth from Christianity and from any other religion. Um, it's called in France laïcité, and we translate it generally in English as secularization, but it's actually secularization on steroids. It's, it's almost to the point of being de-Christianization, a public policy to remove Christianity, to remove religion um, from France. In the French Constitution, Article 1 states, France is a democratic, secular, social state. So it's right there. It's very clear. <clears throat> so how do you bring people to Jesus in a secular country like France? So in one of these very secular countries, maybe the, one of the most secular countries in the world, uh, the gospel message must be planted in unique and fresh ways. Our work focuses on creating what we call safe spaces. And I'll just give you three examples of safe spaces just so you understand a little bit more about our ministry with Greenhouse in Paris. Uh, the first, what we call safe spaces, is we call it serve the poor. Uh, we make ourselves known as people who serve the world's poor. Uh, when people ask me what I do, I say I lead a nonprofit that serves the poor. Uh, when I used to say I'm a pastor, I would never see that person again, and much less say I'm a missionary. So this is kind of our identity. Um, um, we take Parisians to serve in far-flung places like Haiti, Lebanon, and Senegal. Um, local people experience employment and, and, and improve lives, while Parisians learn to serve in Christ-like ways. And I'll mention a little bit more about this, uh, this initiative a little bit later. Um, the second safe space we have is called Embrace Christian Heritage. Our team leads uh, walking tours throughout the, throughout the city in Paris, um, and um, we introduce Parisians to the forgotten Christian history of our great city and introduce them to the one all the old buildings were built to honor, because most of our old buildings were built to honor, uh, honor God and Jesus Christ. And then our third safe space is a call Learn About Jesus, and through both of the first two channels, we meet people one-on-one, -on -one. Careful and sensitive outreach can lead people to be open towards Jesus Christ. All we do is focus on that outcome. That's what Joy and I were called to France to do, to lead people, to, to bring Jesus to people, to lead them to Jesus. And that's the final outcome of all we do, leading people to Jesus Christ. And even in this, this hard uh, soil of France, God is at work, the Holy Spirit is at work, and, and we see people making their way towards Jesus, and we're very thankful. I met George in 2009 um, <clears throat> when France outlawed smoking in cafes and restaurants. This was, I think, January 1st of 2008. George uh, was 18 years old, and he got the bright idea of, of starting a coffee cart business, outdoor coffee cart business. 
and it was a huge success. He has coffee carts all over Paris. And um, we got to know each other and got to be friends when he agreed to do the coffee breaks for one of our events in Paris, for the event of one of our nonprofits. And um, so we, we got to know each other. And a, and a few years later, I asked him if he would come to me, with me to Senegal for a week. Uh, we needed his expertise to evaluate a ministry we were hoping to support there. And this ministry is, is focused around a restaurant. And this restaurant is a, is a, is a tool to um, integrate street boys into society. So it's a, it's a wonderful tool that, and it's a Christian ministry. They bring these street boys to the Lord and they, they disciple them and train them and they give them their first job in this restaurant. And so I went down, um, he agreed to come with me and he said, I want to bring uh, three of my colleagues with me. And I said, that's great. So I went down a little early and briefed the, the people down there and I said, I'm bringing you some secular Parisians. Um, they have no idea about God and about Jesus, but um, you, can, you can really help us by being, you know, being good testimonies to them. And these, it was wonderful to see these, uh, these young men who were former street boys said, he said, they said, Pastor, don't worry. 95% of Senegal is Muslim. We know how to be very discreet in our, in our testimony. So we'll, do, we'll, we'll be fine for you. And sure enough, the, our, the four of them, the four French guys, um, spent a week uh, cleaning and, and uh, training the kitchen staff, training the wait staff, um, training the missionaries. They didn't know they were missionaries. These are uh, Brazilian and Mexican nationals, and they trained them in, in managing a restaurant. So it was really a very very productive week and um, and they were a great testimony to the the French uh, the French people we brought down there so I just was really thrilled with the week so we would work from 8 to 4 every day and around uh, 4 o'clock we would all pile into the old Volvo uh, owned by this mission and uh, they would they would get us they got us these these French guys somehow got us into the Radisson Blue Hotel that has a wonderful pool right on the right on the coast sort of infinity pool so this is missionary duty. Um, and uh, we'd go and sit in this pool from about, you know, 4.30, whatever, until nightfall. And, um, and they would, you know, we'd sit in the cool water, and it, it, was it was wonderful. Well, the last day, I was sitting watching the sun set into the Atlantic Ocean, um, which is amazing, uh, on the side of the pool, you know. And um, I realized that George was right next to me. And he wasn't playing with his friends. And, um, and he looked at me and he said, uh, Stefan, he said, what made you leave religion to do this kind of work? And that was the last thing I ever imagined I'd ever hear. I mean, I never even imagined that question. I never thought of myself as having done that, obviously. Um, but that was the way he framed it. What made you leave religion to do this kind of work. And you know there's that verse in the, New Test in the Gospels where Jesus says, don't worry what to say, the Holy Spirit will give you the words. So that flashed through my mind and I said, I said, George, I just followed Jesus. And he looked at me and I said, you know, um, Jesus, George, Jesus went around feeding the hungry. He went around healing the sick. He went around caring for the poor. If Jesus was in the world today, this is the work he'd be doing. So that's what I want to do. And he just kept staring at me. So 
I thought, okay, I've got to say some more. So I said, I said George, for, for 20 years, I tried to explain to Parisians who Jesus is and why they should follow him. Now I just show them. And finally, he took his eyes off me and, and looked, looked out, and he sat quiet for a long time, and he said, Stefan, on the first Tuesday of every month, I gather a bunch of entrepreneurs at one of my restaurants for drinks. I'd like you to come and be with us and speak to us. And then he swam away and left me sort of stunned with, like, what just happened? This, this guy who pretends and told me he's an atheist, he just is not... If any of you know philosophy, he's a fan of Schopenhauer, a very dismal, sort of pessimistic philosopher. So that's George, and trying to figure out, okay, I said something about Jesus, and he said, come and meet with us and talk to us. Our relationship had become a safe space for George. Um, we've, we've talked a lot since. He hasn't gone much further. Uh, with with his with his interest, and I'm just giving it time. But this is this is what we consider a safe space. A safe space is a venue, an event, or relationship where a secular person can let down their guard, where they can come close, begin to taste and experience God's grace, and someday meet Jesus. So this is the process that we. This is the way we think. With, with secular people in terms of safe spaces. The world has changed, and I think you've noticed it here in the U.S. the same way as just as we've noticed it in France. There's, I don't even know if anybody can say what it is that has changed in the last 15, 10 years, but it's just we're just in a different place, and <clears throat> the church does not seem to be a safe place, a safe space for a lot of people anymore, a lot of secular people. And so the question I'd like to ask and, and that we want to think about this morning is, if the church is no longer a safe space, what can we do? What can we do? Some things we're learning in Paris may be useful to you here on the North Shore. Um, my hope is that we can be an encouragement uh, you've given so much to us, and that maybe this is also time when we can share, share back some things that, that we've learned um, about bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to secular people around us, to our, our friends and our neighbors. And to do that, we, I, I've been looking at the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, which is a very interesting text uh, that I think I had all wrong for many years. And uh, several years ago, the Lord spoke to me, and, and I, I um, am getting a lot of wonderful encouragement out of it. <clears throat> um, the text goes, uh, is, is divided into three parts, and um, we'll just kind of go quickly through the three parts um, of, the, of the parable. Um, I'll just read uh, verses uh, 1 through, through 9 first. Uh, that same day... Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such a large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, 
A farmer went out to sow his seed. He was scattering the seed. Some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on the good soil, where it produced a crop, 160, 30 times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. And in verse 10, the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? Um, my sense is, um, judging from the fact that the parable goes very quickly to the disciples, what, what was interesting to me is, um, is the response of the disciples. Um, because we find that this parable was mostly for them, not for the crowds. The disciples were thrilled, I think, at the size of the crowds that Jesus gathered. At least that's something very significant in this text. And this is the context that, of, of, the, of the parable, is that uh, there, were such, there was such a large crowd that Jesus had to get into a boat and push off from, from shore and sit in it and teach. And I'm sure that was something the disciples organized. They were fishermen, they had boats, they had contacts. Whether it was their place or somebody else's, they knew how to find the boat, and they made sure that Jesus had the boat, and they got him out there. And that was sort of their deaconate for Jesus, to get him out in the boat because it was such a large crowd. And they were thrilled at the size of the crowds. Um, we were thrilled at the size of crowds that we gathered in the 20th century. Um, I was thinking of uh, the days when I, when I lived in, in Deerfield here and in, in Wheaton, and thinking about the times that Soldier Field was probably filled, I don't know how many times, with a crusade, an evangelistic crusade. I mean, the 20th century was a pretty good run. We had a lot of people coming to big events all over the nations, all over the nation, especially in the United States. We filled stadiums, we built great churches, we built wonderful buildings like this one. These were years when large crowds gathered to hear the gospel in churches and at evangelistic events. Some churches today are still large, but overall the church in America has shrunk in size, and we know that, because times have changed. And I don't think these changes have so much to do with the church as they do with the culture. Western culture has changed, and we need to decide what we're going to do. That's what Joy and I, what we faced back after 9-11 and the years following 9-11. We have entered a new time, and I know, like us, you want to face it. So let's move on to part two of the parable, and things will get clearer in terms of what I'm talking about. So... Jesus, um, the disciples come to him and say, why did you speak in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the, prophet, the prophecy of Isaiah, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, 
and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. That's a real mouthful. That was a lot. Um, the parable, this, the, the disciples get along with Jesus and are asking a very telling question. Why do you speak in parables? You had a crowd, Jesus. You had a really good crowd. And you spoke in cryptic language. What, what's the deal? Why, Jesus, why do you speak using riddles? Why not tell them outright? Only a few of you are paying attention to me and your lives show it. But most of you are not paying attention to me. The seed is falling, you know, in weeds and in rocks. You're too busy. You're caught up with your own lives and concerns. I think that's what the disciples thought Jesus should be saying. But Jesus responds very gently, and it's a beautiful response. The knowledge of the kingdom has been given to you, not to them. That, I think, is a beautiful, a beautiful statement. This is not a curse on unbelievers or a judgment of unbelievers. But Jesus is actually saying, belief is all about my kingdom. The knowledge of the kingdom has been given to you. In other words, Jesus is about the cross that we sang about this morning. The cross and the resurrection. Paul says the gospel boils down to this. Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day. That is the smallest, most concise presentation of the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom is first about the cross, then about the resurrection, but also Jesus, if you look at Jesus' teaching and his, and his ministry, caring for the poor, the sick, the prisoners, faithfulness to spouses, integrity at the workplace, paying honest wages, you know, all the, all, the, all the teachings Jesus gave throughout his ministry. That's the kingdom Jesus proclaimed. And Jesus goes on in verse 13, what we read. In fact, he says, many who listen by the lake this morning are not following me, but this is nothing new. Did you forget what God told the prophet of Isaiah 600 years ago? They have eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, and their hearts don't turn to God for healing. Jesus, I think, is saying, that's not going to stop me from bringing the good news to people, and it should not stop you from bringing the good news to people. So I think this is a very important place for us to, to stay in this, in this changing time and, and, and reaching secular people, is... Um, Jesus is encouraging us to keep sowing the seed of the gospel, whatever the response. We don't stop sowing the seed of the gospel. We keep the cross and the resurrection of Jesus in the forefront of all we do. We do not shy back from that at all. But among secular people, people generally opposed to church and religion, we sense an expectation in France, and you might find that here, that Christians are the ones who should be taking leadership in caring for the poor, in caring for the refugees we have in France, taking care of the sick, the hungry, the excluded ones. This seems to be part of 
the gospel, the knowledge of the kingdom that Jesus referred to. And we find it that French people find it very appropriate that we're the ones as Christians who do that. And they respect that. I had a woman who, who uh, after she'd been, she never accepted the Lord, but she'd come to several of our meetings back in the 90s. And, and then she became acquainted with the work we're doing now. And she said, well, at least now you're doing something useful. <laughs> so I said, thanks. Thanks, Muriel. That was her name. <clears throat> and here's, here's, here's my hope. Um, here's what I hope in Paris. And that's by the time I have the opportunity to share Jesus with somebody, they will have seen in me the works of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to wait until they do, but my hope is that by the time I have the opportunity to share Jesus with someone, they will have already seen me doing the works of Jesus. Keep sharing Jesus. And then we get to, we're going through this very quickly, getting through, getting to part three of the parable. And finally, Jesus explains the parable. And he explains it in the following way, I think, think like a farmer. I don't know if any of you are from farming backgrounds or farming communities. This will all be very familiar. Jesus said, now listen to what the parable of the sower means. In other words, don't think you understand what the parable of the sower means yet, because I have not explained it. Guys, you've been jumping to conclusions about what the parable of the sower is, and they're the wrong conclusions. Jesus says, I'm going to interpret it. And he adds the name of the parable. We didn't know the name of the parable until Jesus told us here. He called it the parable of the sower. We might have called it the parable of the soils. That's the way I always heard it. You know, you have good soil, you have weed soil, you have rocky soil, and that was the the weeds in the soil were the, the, the seeds in the soil were the most important part of the parable. And Jesus seems to shift it away from that. And he says, this is the parable of the sower. The most important thing to remember, he tells his disciples, is to learn to think like a sower, like a farmer, the way a farmer thinks about seed and soil. First the seed. First the seed. After every, after every harvest... A farmer has a very important decision to make. He has to allocate the seed he's just harvested and decide what he's going to do with it. He has to sell some to make a living, pay his... This is back in the days when Jesus was, was speaking, and it's probably much the same today. He, keeps some, he sells some to make a living. He keeps some to feed his family until the next harvest. And he saves some to sow in the spring. Because if he sells it all or eats it all, he won't have any to sow. So it's a very careful allocation of his harvest every, every fall. And in the spring, he takes the part of last year's harvest he didn't sell and used to feed his family, and he sows it into the ground. He throws it onto the ground. So you can imagine that he's careful not to waste any of that seed. That's his livelihood. That's what he has. That's his that, those are his goods. So the seed. It's a very special, special. He's got three buckets. Sell, eat, sow. And he's very careful with his process. Okay? Second, the soil. The sower scatters as much of his seed as he can on good soil that he has thoughtfully prepared. 
He knows his land. He's the farmer. That's his land. And he wants the best crop possible. And knows good soil bears a lot of fruit. So no farmer would say to himself, this year I want a lot of crops. I want a bumper crop, in fact. So I'm going to take my, har my, my seed and I'm going to sow it all over. On the path, on the road, in the yard, everywhere. I'm just going to put seed all over the place. That, that's not smart, that's careless. He'd be wasting seed and putting his family at risk and putting his business at risk. But more importantly, I think it would be disregard for the soil. There'll always be roads by the fields, there'll always be rocks and, field, and, and weeds to avoid. But a good farmer clears away as much as he can before he sows. He cares for his land and soil. I don't think there's a farmer who stays and sits and drinks coffee in his kitchen all winter, and then when it's spring, he comes out and, 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 and sows all of a sudden. No, he's out there every day clearing the rocks, pulling the weeds, preparing the soil, so when it's harvest, when it's sowing time, he'll have the best possible soil uh, to put his seed into. So what Jesus is teaching makes a lot of sense to me if I think like a farmer, like a sower. Jesus is asking you and me to be careful sowers, to pay close attention to the soil of people's lives, to be attentive in the way we share Jesus with them, to plan ahead, to think ahead, like a farmer. Think prayerfully and carefully about the people you see regularly in your neighborhood or at work. What can you do? What can you do ahead of time so that when the time comes, the seed of the gospel has the best chance of bearing fruit in their life? Maybe it's not time yet to, you know, give them your testimony or the message of, of Jesus. But what can you be doing so that when the time does come, the soil will be prepared? They'll be ready to hear. So the parable was really for the disciples, wasn't it? Not for the huge crowds. And it certainly was not a tool used to judge the crowds and to judge people and say, oh, he's rocky soil, he's weed soil, you know, he's, he's a path where the birds come and eat it. Think like a farmer. So let's, um, I'd just like to, my time is up, I think, but I want to think about preparing the soil for the gospel. Will you, will you bear with me if I take another five minutes? Is, that, is everybody okay with that? Okay, thank you. <clears throat> A few things that we've learned among Parisians that might be helpful here in your situation. The first is prayer. Um, we sang this morning, Thou alone can save. And that is true. And if that is true, who saves people? It's God alone. We need to beseech God to save people. Since arriving in Paris, I think rarely it has gone by that we have not prayed specifically for the salvation of men and women and children in Paris. That is, that is the core of our life and of our ministry, praying for the salvation of people. Second Thessalonians 3, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly. Paul did not imagine that it would spread rapidly without prayer. Prayer is not a distinct activity or ministry for some. It's the privilege of all of us to lift our concerns to God, to bring the needs of fellow believers before the Lord, 
and especially to ask the Lord to open doors and hearts to the good news of Jesus Christ. I think prayer is the single most, prior, the single most important priority of our lives. And I know it, I try very hard to keep that true in my life. Second, listening. I like, I like Paul's visit to Athens in Acts 17. Um, we just read th- this one sentence really strike, gets my attention. While Paul was waiting for them, so his colleagues were supposed to meet him, he left ahead of time and, and his, um, his, his uh, traveling companions were to meet him in Athens. While he was waiting for them, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And later on, Paul speaks before the Athenians and he refers to their idols and especially to one idol that was entitled to an unknown God. Paul was attentive to the city, to people's lives. He was respectful of their beliefs. Different city, different times, but I'm challenged by Paul's example and I've seen that even secular Parisians have interest in finding meaning in their life and have an interest for God as we, as we mentioned earlier. Joy and I learned very early in our ministry that the only people who can, the only people who can tell us how to bring the gospel to secular Parisians are secular Parisians. You can't read it in a book. You can't get it from somebody else. You're the one who has to go out and listen and find out what are people's concerns, what are their burdens, what are their aspirations, how do they make decisions? And th- these are just very important questions. What's important to them? And this is the farmer, you know. He's not sitting, he's out in his field, getting to know his soil, working, and working it, working it, and, and getting to know it so that when the time for sowing comes, he knows his field. We need to listen to people. We need to be up close with them. Not necessarily inviting them to church yet. Not even, you know, waiting, waiting on God. God does the saving, waiting on God for the time when we can share the gospel, but just being with them, befriending them, learning about them. What, what makes them tick? How do they work? How do they function? Listening to people, secondly. Thirdly, uh, I'll call it acts of grace. Um, in Paris, we often get one chance to share the gospel with people and, and they're either attentive or we never see them again. So we, we are very careful to make that time count. Um, Paul says, pray for us too that God would open a door for our message, is Colossians 4. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be f- full of grace seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Grace is something multifaceted. Uh, grace is generosity. It's generous. Grace is, is not self-seeking. Grace is um, respectful. Grace is caring. Grace is listening. Uh, you probably know a lot about grace. Just... And, and these, are, these are facets of God's life that we can offer to people. Grace will speak, God's grace will speak to your friend or to a secular person. 
and we need to find out what facet of grace will do the speaking. Find that and give it to them. Give it to them. We are the fragrance of Christ. Give them the facet that will speak to them. And it'll intrigue them. It'll make a secular person thirsty. They might not want to hear about invitation to church, even to Easter or to, or to Christmas or anything. But they will respond to one facet of God's grace. And that's our challenge is to find, how can I give them that facet? So I'm becoming the fragrance of Christ to that person. Uh, and the last thing I will say is, is, is cultivate safe spaces. Um, whoever drinks the water that I will give them, we read that before, will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of life that lasts forever. <clears throat> Professional Christians, and by that I mean maybe those of us who are missionaries, pastors, ministry leaders, may not be in the best position to bring secular people, to bring Jesus to secular people anymore. I think bringing Jesus to secular people might have to start far from the church. Because I think that's one of the problems of secular people. They reject the church and religion. That's part of the definition. And so reaching them will have to start far from religion and the church. Many of you rub shoulders with secular people every day or you work with them or they're in your neighborhood. Just by your life, you can decide to be a safe space where a secular person can let down their guard, where they can come close, where they can begin to taste and experience God's grace and someday they will meet Jesus. And that's the vision I'd like to leave for you. Each one of you has an incredible part to play. We, we've, the 20th century got us used to being church-centered. And, okay, for us, church is the center. So I'm not, I'm not talking about our lives and our worship, but I'm talking about evangelism, being church-centered, bringing people in, gathering them. And this new secular age is, is resistant to that is what we found in France, and, and it may be the same thing on the North Shore. But by your life, you can be, you have wonderful opportunities. Um, and you don't have to learn a pre gospel presentation and go give it to people, because it starts way before that. Being a place where, being a safe space where a secular person near you can let down their guard, where they can come close, where they can begin to taste and experience God's grace, and there they will meet Jesus. I think God gives some individuals and some churches a special vision and burden to take the extra time to listen, to pray, to be attentive, and to find ways of showing God's grace to people. I think there are also a host of secular people out there who, are, who have questions about God and there's nobody close and that they trust they can ask. So I trust that you individually and you as a church will take up this challenge and prepare the way for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for leaving, sending your son. Thank you, Jesus, for leaving glory 
leaving heaven to come to earth and bringing heaven to us. We are so thankful, so grateful, and give us just a great vision and a great delight in, in preparing to bring this wonderful news of Jesus uh, to people around us.